Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Um, one of the questions I, uh, I like to ask myself, or, or really one of the things I like to introduce uh, to listeners to the show and to folks who read my writing, is the, uh, is the relationship to history and particularly to countercultural history. Uh, this is not really history as we're normally uh, brought up to think about it of, uh, you know, kings and statesmen and uh, famous actors and, uh, um, you know, major uh, art movements in New York City, et cetera, et cetera. Although all of these things have their own uh, countercultural shadows. I'm talking about diving into the stuff that is not uh, remembered uh, to uh, characters in particular who... Um, in retrospect, rise up with a kind of striking charisma, uh, even if for whatever reason their their stories are not terribly remembered, because many times they do end up getting remembered. And I think one of the reasons they do end up getting remembered um, is because they not only resonate with concerns both then and now, but that there's something actually healing and important about recognizing um, uh, those who've come before, and, you know, in 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 a sense, uh, the exploratory, open-ended, sometimes anarchic, sometimes um, deluded uh, path of, of the underground or of uh, resistance or of uh, putting the pedal to the metal in all variety of uh, directions and manners um, is a sort of uh, rootlessness, and that one of the ways. Uh, that we can understand ourselves, at least if we have this kind of identity, um, which is already, uh, you know, a, a, an interesting thing to explore. What does it mean to have an identity with something that kind of resists conventional identity, at least in principle? Uh, nonetheless, for those of us who have that uh, attraction, uh, stories from the past um, can provide a kind of continuity, even if they do not avoid the difficult questions. And uh, one example of this uh, that has sort of shifted recently uh, over the last uh, five to ten years is uh, the uh, artist uh, uh, and sometimes magician and definite wild woman witch, uh, Marjorie Cameron, uh, who's known as one of the figures in um, Jack Parsons' story. We've had talked about Parsons on this show before, and there's going to be a mini series coming up at, uh, at some point. So the, the wider world will, will hear about this, uh, rocket science, uh, thelemite magician. And, uh, but Cameron was a remarkable artist in her own and something that was not, um, really remembered at all that nobody, even people who were familiar with her as a part of Jack Parsons story really knew what kind of influence she had later on. She was a shadowy figure, a marginal figure, uh, in the LA Demi Monde. And then over the last, uh, few years, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, her name became more prominent. People started to turn onto her stuff. We, people started to appreciate the, the, the artworks that remained because she burned a lot of her artworks. There were a couple of absolutely fabulous shows uh, devoted to her work. And so in some ways, Cameron has been remembered in the sense of not just we recall her, but sort of building together again a kind of composite image of who this person was. And even if it always remains a little bit enigmatic with her in particular, 
she, you know, there's more, far more resonance for more people in terms of her work uh, and her life. Uh, and one of the uh, influences on that uh, uh, return, that remembering, was Spencer Kansas' biography uh, of Cameron, Wormwood Star, named after a wonderful uh, short Curtis Harrington film uh, that starred Cameron and also includes a lot of artwork that was later destroyed. Remarkable, remarkable images. Images that I thought of when I was reading uh, Spencer's more recent book, uh, out there, the transcendent life and art of Bert Schoenberg. And Bert was uh, friends and sometimes lovers with Cameron and was also an artist and kind of ironically uh, was a much more famous artist at the time in the in the 60s in particular uh, in L.A. associated with psychedelia, with visionary experience, with visionary art, and yet uh, was has largely been forgotten. I never knew about the guy. I'd seen some of his images in uh, Robert Corman films, I mean, uh, um, Roger Corman films, and recognized them when I finally saw the images. Uh, but so even though I pay a reasonable amount of attention to this space, I'm no super expert on the L.A. bohemia of the 60s. But, you know, I'm more than your average bear. And I hadn't really heard of Bert's work. So this uh, biography was a mind blower to me. It's totally delicious for an esoteric Californiana guy like me. You know, I, I can't say we're all we're all signed up to that uh, side of the of the story. But it's a very juicy story, not only of a, a fascinating guy and a remarkable artist, and there's a lot of images in the book, and there's a lot of images online. If you're just listening to this, you might want to stop for a moment and look up uh, Bert Schoenberg, S-C-H-O-N-B-E-R-G, and just take a look at some of his remarkable images. Uh, but, you know, as a good biographer does, and while I liked Wormwood Star, I, 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 I would have to say this is a, 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 a an even better book, and partly because he does such a great job uh, not only of telling Bert's story, but of like seeing how Bert uh, acts as a kind of lens into a lot of things that were going on uh, in L.A. Oscar Janiger's LSD research, the occult world of of, of Cameron, Cameron, the sort of uh, f the freaky rock and roll culture uh, associated with the famous uh, 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 Vito uh, Palekas and the, the freak scene around Zappa and all that. So there's tons of characters that show up in this in this marvelous tale. And uh, I was happy to get Spencer to come back on Expanding Minds. So, Spencer, welcome again to the show. Well, thank you very much, Eric. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and thank you for that uh, for your generous words. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as, as I said, this was a really fun book to read. Uh, it was full of, uh, it was very lively. And, uh, you know, you, you seem to have developed a way of dealing with the whole picture that surrounds these bohemian stories. Because telling these kinds of histories is, is in some ways a, a different, it, I don't know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's different than other kinds of biographies that I read because you, you're always in some kind of strange scene. And there's always sort of pathological elements to the scene. There's there's issues of craziness. There's all the sexual shenanigans, which can grow dark. There's, uh, you know, there's a, the kind of there's sometimes a criminal element. There's definitely a lot of fragmented lives. And at the same time, there's all this exuberance and all this creativity. But there's something kind of elusive about it. I mean, it's always strange, like reading about wild orgies from 50 years ago. You know, you're like, I don't really know what to do with this information. It's it's really <laughs> a different kind of reading. So I just want to hear you reflect a little bit on this is, 
you know, your second major biography looking at these kinds of characters, just how you've come to to think about the role of biography in drawing attention to these countercultural scenes. Well, they're obviously very juicy characters to write. Um, and but one of the things I, I, I realized I had to be careful about early on was that many of them, um, when we're talking about particularly about Cameron and uh, Kenneth Anger, Samson Debrier, and Bert to a, to a lesser extent, is that these were people who were living in their own worlds a lot of the time and, and were very um, uh, self-mythologizing. So sometimes you have to be careful that you can't get too sucked into exactly um, what is being said because they really were living in, a, in their own kind of bubble. And it's always nice occasionally when I would speak to friends of theirs who would kind of uh, pop these uh, bubbles and um and bring a very human element actually my favorite moment in wormwood star is the fact that um because it's just so very human is the fact that jack parsons first wife helen um was mad at cameron because she felt that cameron's uh usage of uh hashish was contributing to bert's middle-aged spread and uh, that that's always stuck out for me. That's a favorite uh, part of the book because it's just so, uh, amid all the the strangeness and weirdness, it, it, it strikes a very, very human uh, note. Absolutely. And I mean, and that's, I think, part of the the secret truth about, about uh, Bohemia in general is that, you know, there's all the wildness, the, the way it looks wild and, and chaotic and, and scary from the straight point of view. And then the way in which self-mythologization and the sort of exuberance for performance and for spectacle is so much a part of the scene itself that there's this sort of missing third part, which is the, the ordinary aspect. And yeah. it doesn't just mean ordinary like being worried about someone gaining weight, but also the ways in which, you know, people raise families. They might actually have more ordinary ethics than you might assume. You know, you don't really know how people actually live. Well, yeah, uh, and sometimes I mean, they live, all the whole thing is crazy. And you often find mixes where there's a sort of aspect that's sort of really exuberant and uncorked and juicy. And then another part that's really kind of ordinary. And in that way, that it also humanizes them and, and makes them more... Um, you know, we can connect with them uh, more more intimately uh, than just, you know, hearing the mythologization. Well, I, I, I can give you another great example of that, is that, you know, for years people thought, you know, why did um, Sarah, uh, Helen's half-sister, who also had a relationship with Jack Parsons, you know, why should she, why did she transfer her affections from Jack to L. Ron Hubbard, you know, who on the surface, you know, was... You know, Jack was very handsome. You know, he, he was a, a man of means. He had that lovely mansion in Pasadena. You know, why would she give up on Jack, who was seemed such a catch, and, and go in, throw in with Ron, who, too, although by all accounts was a very charming man and, you know, a, a great storyteller? Um, you know, why why would she give up? And, it, it again, it was for a very human reason. She wanted to start a family. And Jack was adamant that he wanted no children. And, you know, particularly, I mean, remember, we're talking about the 1940s here. You know, it was the, uh, 
a woman was expected to, you know, at, at some point to settle down and to start a family. And Jack, that, that was never going to happen with Jack. And that's what, you know, that's one of the reasons, I, I would suggest that's one of the main reasons why she saw, she, uh, she then went, uh, she became romantically involved with uh, Elron instead. Yeah, Again, that's, not, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So when you were doing, obviously you first, or you came across Bert, uh, his story and his work, in doing your camera in research, when when did you kind of go, hey, there's a there's another book here, or there's a story here that that hasn't been told, you know, even more, uh, an even more obscure one than Cameron's, in, in some ways, paradoxically, given that he was better known at the time in a, in a lot of ways. So when did it kind of like what what got the hook into you? Well, I, you're exactly right. While I was um, researching the camera book in in Los Angeles, one of the person. One of the people who I interviewed was uh, Joan Whitney, who you may remember, uh, who was a friend of Cameron, who starred in uh, Kenneth Anger's film Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. She plays Aphrodite, beautiful, beautiful blonde woman in that film. And um, her partner, uh, a gentleman called Gerald Copeland, who knew Cameron uh, not not you know, wasn't necessarily friends with Cameron, but knew knew her and had spent some time with her over the years. He actually was a very good friend with Bert Schomburg and had some examples of, of Bert's work. And uh, he then introduced me to a, another friend of of, he, of him and, and Bert, uh, Iroh Desky, and he had some examples of Bert's work. And they spoke about Bert in such a laudatory way. And it was obvious from the way that from the things that they were saying and the way they still held him in such reverence that this was a very special, soulful individual. And then when I actually saw the work, I mean, the, the, what, some of his work is so striking and, and you know, really aesthetically beautiful. And that's when the idea hatched that, you know, once the Cameron book was put to put to bed that, that I should really focus my attention on Burr because as you pointed out earlier ironically he was actually very well known in the in uh, the bohemian scene of Los Angeles in the late 1950s and through the 60s even if you didn't know him personally if most of the hangouts uh, um, along the Sunset Strip and a lot of the the uh, early coffee houses all contained his work, so you, you would have been um, you would have been aware of his of his artistry, even if you weren't necessarily aware of the the man who created them. And he sh he should also be seen. I, I I was just thinking about this earlier that I know how um, how important um, mural work in Los Angeles is. How how today how seriously it's taken and he was really one of the pioneers of that you know and unfortunately none of it exists except in photographs but uh again he he, he really does he deserves to uh he really does deserve to be uh seen as a pioneer uh, as one of the early muralists of uh, of los angeles yeah well let's talk about his art a little bit i mean one one comment to just make is one of the interesting things uh, that you point out is like why just at, just in terms of his art is he n not remembered and this is true not just from the what we could call the mainstream art world which already has certain uh, inherent prejudices against uh, psychedelic art or popular art 
Um, but even for people who are interested in juxtaposed art or Rick Griffin or Big Dottie Roth or whatever, there, there's still a kind of a, a weird opacity there, which would be interesting to talk about. But what, one point before that is just thinking how one of the reasons these kinds of popular artists, it's not quite the right term in his sense because he was also a very fine stylist, like he, he, he had, you know, mad skills but the images and the ambiance also had a kind of, you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of sci-fi pulp cover, a little bit of monster movie, but also visionary and also Blakey. And so it was this really delicious mixture of kind of high and low, which makes it more elusive for a lot of people because they either like it high or low. They, the, the mixture confuses them. But it's also that his art showed up in unconventional places like on murals. Like yeah. at, you know, these bohemian cafes. It's not like, even though he had shows, it's like his art was already in its world in a different way than we think of with conventional ideas of what an artist is doing, painting picture that goes, sits in the gallery and gets collected. Yeah, I think, I think you know, he obviously, he, he saw absolutely no, um, no boundary whatsoever between the high and low art. And the fact that... Um, one of the reasons I well I think there's, there's many reasons, but I think one of the reasons why other uh, say art critics haven't taken the time to look at his work is that he wasn't necessarily part of any scene. You know, he wasn't part of the uh, Ferris Gallery scene, although he knew uh, John Altoon. Um, he he wasn't part of the uh, Southern California assemblage art scene. He really was a kind of a lone wolf out there for many years. And but but as I say, he was very very well known. I mean, when I interviewed Dennis Hopper uh, for the Cameron book, I mean he he spoke of Bert's work very glowingly. Um, uh, I've been told that um, Lenny Bruce was a was a great fan of his work. So the, the people who were actually around during that time, you know, some of the movers and shakers in L.A. at that time were, were highly admiring of him. You, you know, you mentioned Roger Corman, obviously. Um, uh, Arthur Lee from Love, you know, used, uh, owned and used... Uh, one of Bert's uh, portraits on on the cover of their love on the Love album on the Out Here Love album. So yeah, it, it, it is ironic that he was actually far more well known than Cameron ever was um, back then, and yet um, that that it, it's only now. Well, I guess it's better late than never, but it, now we're hoping to uh, to kind of reinstate him and, and give him his rightful place in the history of. Uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, art. Yeah, and, and also just as as a visionary artist, one of the things I was thinking about when I was looking at his images um, is I was I reminded me of a of a particular character of William Blake's images that you don't actually see reflected in a lot of uh, well, let's call it visionary art and take it in the broadest sense, including psychedelic art, but also artists who you know paint other worlds and enchanted worlds, whether they're popular illustrators or high artists doesn't really matter, but there's something very particular about Blake's figures, which is that mm. they're very meaty. 
they're kind of like they have that comic book thickness to them, like a Jack Kirby image. You know, you really when you look at a Jack Kirby image, you really feel the like physical density of the figure. There's something about the line and the way that it's sort of carved in space that you really feel the sense of like a, a dimensional body. And that's something very true of Blake, too. And it's kind of interesting because Blake had a whole riff on that on you know sometimes people associate vi- visionary or mystical art with kind of diaphanous mm. vague flowy you know uh, cloudy kinds of scenes but Blake was always really clear that the true visionary see th- sees things with clear and distinct lines almost mm. like you know cartoon lines and you see that in his images and looking at at Bert's figures there's a quality there that, I, again, I don't see often, even in very figural, fantastic art, where you really feel the density of these figures. They're very real, in a sense. Mm. And I guess he even called his art magical realist in some sense, which is a great name. There's something like you can't just write it off as some kind of cartoon or something that someone scribbled on a, in a notebook when they were high, even though they have that kind of trippy aspect to it. So there's there's something really powerful about the figures in his in his work that remind me of like a you know kind of a mastery of an ability to invoke a visionary realm but have it come through with a kind of sense of reality that you can't just dismiss. Yeah, well, I, I and I think it all comes around. You know, his great boyhood hero was uh, Captain Marvel. You know, so he was he was reared. You know, he was of that generation that was. Uh, reared on on comic books, and I, I include in the book, as you as as you know, some of his very earliest, you know, some of his boyhood uh, drawings, you know, when he was, you know, in his very early teens or even younger, and you can see, you know, the the, the garishness and and all, the quite gory nature of them were heavily inspired by uh, the comic books of of, of his day, and I, and I think you know, yes, some of his later later works. It would still retain that kind of comic book uh, garishness, um, and and yet you, you we go you can go from that part to you know his sphinx uh, his depiction of the sphinx, which I think um, are very very um, reminiscent of Cameron's. Cameron also uh, 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 the sphinx appears in uh, some of her uh, uh, earliest earliest surviving work. Which, which are very, very ethereal. So yes, he he really did kind of run the gamut, and um, and also was involved in many different kind of styles. I, one of the points I make in the book was that he he kind of decided quite precociously to to take on the masters, and you know one of his most famous uh, portraits is his take on the Mona Lisa. In which he uh, he transposes a to a, a beatnik cafe, perhaps Cafe Frankenstein in Laguna Beach, and uh, another one of his drawings is obviously uh, a, a homage or a parody of Picasso's The, the Kiss, and you, he really thought that you know he should take on the masters, and I think it was a good way of of flexing his muscles, and I also think it was quite a cheeky. Uh, kind of a cheeky, beatnicky thing to do. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to ask about the the, the Frankenstein Cafe, which was a, a famous scene, and also about this figure of uh, Frankenstein. But be- before I ask you about what why that figure was important to to Bert, 
it just uh, I'll put in other context that um, the uh, I don't know if you saw the the well like I don't know, six part Grateful Dead documentary um, Long Strange Trip. Um, which was a wonderful documentary. I mean, not just because it was interesting material, but just as a documentary, they did a very, very good job, much better than I expected them to do. Uh, really was quite remarkable in, in some ways. And one thing that was excellent about how they did the documentary was Jerry Garcia was a monster movie fan. He liked weird stuff. He liked comic books. He liked crazy you know, illustrations. He was an artist. He was sort of, in some ways, he would be someone who would have recognized Bert's genius, whether he knew of him or not, I don't know. Um, but they used the motif of Frankenstein throughout the documentary to represent both kind of like the whole creation of this weird band that took on a life of its own beyond the control of anybody. Um, but also, for me, it was a really important way, again, of, of keeping uh, one foot in, of the psychedelic story in what I like to think of as greasy kid stuff. That mm. there's a tendency for people who are interested in psychedelic culture, particularly people who really kind of signed up, to sort of emphasize the lofty, you know, the sacred, the, the, you know, the big har the harmony of the world or the gods or the return of the goddess or the jungle or whatever it is. Great. That stuff's part of it, too. But there's another part of it that's super greasy kid stuff that's monster movies and comic books and bubble gum and weird, you know, weird stuff. And Bert always seemed to have like that seemed to be one of the things that fed him was kind of not just that he was influenced by Captain Marvel and things like that, but that 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 was like a source that he was able to then kind of transform into works that went much broader and and more in a more, you know, artistically sophisticated direction from that connection with figures like that. So when he names the cafe Frankenstein, it clearly it's an important figure for him. So yeah. what is the specifics there? What was it about Frankenstein that really uh, that resonated with Bert? Well, I obviously I, I, I didn't have Bert to speak to, uh, to to get it from him directly, but I was lucky enough to talk to the late great George Clayton Johnson about that. And he said that, you know, we were both enamored. Uh, George was was also a, a partner in Cafe Frankenstein, uh, as well as the folk singer Doug Myers. And he, the way he explained it was that they, they saw Frankenstein as the victim. They were, in, they were on his side. They, they were enamored with him. Um, that they, to, to quote what George Clayton Johnson said, it, in certain ways, Frankenstein was defective because he was made up of the, all these different spare parts. And he felt that anybody of my generation who amounted to anything also felt like that. And so um, that was the way that George Clayton Johnson explained it to me. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that. But also, all of the all of those monster movies. You know, Bert was also enamored with you know Wolfman and Dracula, and that that they were also that uh, uh, they also came up in in his murals as well. But I think that was it. Is that they they really did uh, identify with the monster who the the straight society saw as the monster. They saw a part of themselves in him. Yeah, and then and then on the monster movie tip, uh, t 
talk about his relationship with uh, with Roger Corman, and then of course the you know the the marvelous star of, of many of Corman's uh, uh, Poe movies, uh, Vincent Price, both of whom mm. uh, seem to have interesting contacts with uh, with Bert. That's a beautiful photograph, isn't there? There's a for those that don't know, there's a beautiful photograph in the book of uh, Bert visiting uh, the set of the House of Usher in which he had uh, created these marvelous portraits uh, for for the mansion, for the Usher mansion, and uh, Bert's meeting with Roger Corman and uh, Vincent Price, both of whom uh, helped themselves to uh, several of Bert's artworks after the film wrapped. Uh, unfortunately, nobody knows what's what's happened to any of those portraits because the, even the ones that are the, the the two that Roger Corman owned were stolen from his office many many moons ago. And I learned from Vincent Price's daughter that he owned no Schomburgs at the time of his death. So we don't know what happened to the ones that he once owned. And again, it's a great it's one of the mysteries about. Uh, Bert's work is that uh, so much of it is, I'm sure, out there somewhere, um, but we, we don't quite know where it is yet. He has, right. that, he, he has that in common with, with Cameron, of course. There's an awful lot of uh, missing Cameron work. Some of it she did destroy, as, as I detail in the book, um, particularly the stuff that she had done. Yes, yes the stuff that appears what's known as the parchments, which appear in the Curtis Harrington short film, which you mentioned in your introduction. But also, um, apparently a lot of the work that she did when she was living with Jack, um, I felt, from what Shirley Berman said to me, she felt that by destroying it, it was a kind of a way of finally releasing herself from from Jack and, and kind of starting her life anew. But but saying that, I mean, a couple of Bert's work have have shown up just in recent months. So it, it, I'm sure I'm sure those portraits are out there somewhere. But they're probably hiding in somebody's uh, garage or attic or or someplace. Well, so one thing we haven't uh, spoken about more is is his personality. I mean, he was clearly a very interesting fellow, very uh, very, very rich interior life in some ways, in some ways a social gadfly. And then, of course, part of the story is how um, over time and, you know, even before he first took LSD, but certainly once LSD enters the picture and, and, and the, his whole connection with Oscar Janigers is, is fascinating. But just how, you know, he started to go off the rails in, in, in various ways, but in that kind of enigmatic way that artists sometimes do. Um, but he definitely was not just a visionary artist. He was a visionary. He had his own very rich, enchanted, and sometimes uh, self-destructive Kind of visionary life, um, whether we think about it as mystical or religious or spiritual, uh, interested in the Gurdjieff work, obsessed with the figure of, of Baphomet. Um, so t- talk a little bit about, I was just curious about that, like when, was he always kind of this sort of visionary character or was it not until he got into the bohemian world and the drug world that it started to open up? Well, I, my my initial take was that Cameron would have been a pivotal influence on 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 the mystical side of of him 
Um, but she introduced him, uh, it was she that introduced him to peyote first. Cameron was uh, sending off for, for peyote. There was, a, there was a botanical garden in Texas back then where you could kind of send off for peyote and, and get it through the mail. And uh, she would have uh, uh, turned Bert on to uh, peyote first. Um, although, as you say, it, it was it was Bert Beater to the draw when it came to trying LSD uh, first. But I also think that um, the Hampton Fancher, who I who I interviewed, was who was very close friends with Bert in the first five or six years that Bert first came to Los Angeles. He detected that there was a kind of a streak of schizophrenia in Bert um, prior to even meeting Cameron. And that, you know, that that was exacerbated by his drug use, um, not just by later by the LSD, but I mean, they were doing, you know, tons and tons of Benzedrine back then as well, which obviously uh, helped. But when he he was doing his uh, mural work, which could be very laborious and very time consuming, it, be, it meant he could stay up for days on end and, and get jobs completed. Um, but that, I thought that was very interesting that Hampton detected that very early on. I, I mean, Bert would have been in his early 20s by then. And that, 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 that Bert wasn't necessarily of sound mind even prior to uh, meeting Cameron and, and getting involved with drugs. That Hampton could detect that there was a kind of a schizophrenic streak in him. And, and then how did, uh, how did LSD kind of shift his framework or change his art or change his uh, the way he was showing up in the world and and it's it's interesting to note that he he really got his first exposure through these through Oscar Janiger who was a very important figure in the kind of creation of psychedelic culture in California because he though he had a relationship with uh, University of California he also had a private practice and at a point when acid was still legal, he was um, using them not just for therapeutic uses or treating alcoholism was something that was common at the time, but also uh, to explore creativity and that and that there was a particular protocol that he was following in the experiments that that Bert participated in, I guess, a couple times. Talk a little bit about what that that uh, research program was about what Janiger was interested in and how he found the people to take part in his creativity studies. Well, Janiger was particularly wanted to focus on, on what LSD 25 was going to do to the creative uh, mind. So obviously he, uh, the word went out to uh, actors and to artists and to poets that um, there was this doctor who was, who was, conducting these trials and uh, the one of the first things that you can see is that I'm pretty certain that prior to 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 his engagement with Janico is that Bert's first abstracts were, were done uh, actually during one of the sessions I, I actually managed to uh, track one down from Janica's son and, and you can see, but Bert's abstracts have a, have a even d despite the fact that they're not they they're they're not um, very uh, descriptive. Again, you can there, there's something about his the, his touch that you can tell. It, it's you can almost tell immediately that it's a Schomburg. Just that the, the 
just the way in which uh, he, he, he concocts them. And so that, that was the first time, I think, that he really got involved seriously with abstracts was uh, during and following his, uh, his two sessions with Janica, who remained very, very fond of uh, 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 Bert throughout. Um, when Bert, later on in the 70s, um, was brought in uh, to, to do some the artwork for the rock band Spirit, he was brought in by his friend and patron Marshall Burl. Uh, one of the, the bass player on, on the Spirit of 76 uh, album was actually seeing um, uh, Janica in, in, a, in a private capacity at that time and, and actually mentioned after the sessions, you know, Bert's name. And, and Janica, according to him, you know, raved, was was still, you know, over a decade later, raving about Bert. He really thought that he was a, 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 a great artist. And then later in the late 80s, Janica had a an exhibition at his home in Santa Monica. And Bert's pal, uh, the, the actor Stanley director, uh, visited uh, that exhibition. And it, it, he saw some of Bert's work on Janica's Wars. So, yeah, Janica remained very, very fond of Bert. Um, but it, even, I'm not sure whether any of the tales that uh, of Bert kind of publicly falling apart, these quite disturbing stories of him, you know, people seeing him, you know, talking to himself and gesticulating up at the sky, you know, shambling along the Sunset Strip in a very animated and very disturbing way. I don't know if any of those stories ever filtered back to Janica, but he remained uh, uh, very, uh, v- he remained a great fan of Burr and his and his artwork. So talk about how, as a biographer, uh, and, you know, a sympathetic biographer, but one who's not uh, interested in, in hero worship, uh, how you deal with the, the sort of pathological elements of your figures. I mean, in, in, it's, though a different, situation it's a it's a similar question with Cameron I mean if you're looking at Cameron you're like I'm going to take this woman very seriously she's not in the shadow of anyone she's a powerhouse she's a creative powerhouse she had a lot of influence and a lot of people you know Wallace Berman and George Herms you know some of the great assemblage artists of that time were like all about her and her influence so she was very important very strong figure and yet if you look at the biography you talk to people you just there's some very pathological elements, you know, whether you want to think of that as craziness or insecurity or anxiety or whatever sort of mental health issue you want to name it. There, there's a, an element of it that's that's very ragged and raw and and, and challenging and, and difficult and and sad, uh, mm. even. So when you're approaching that at, with these figures who are, you know, in in many ways very sympathetic and deserve attention, deserve to have their stories told. How do you think about that? How do you sort of weave in uh, the more disturbing aspects of their of their mental lives uh, along with their story? Well, I, I think you just have to be as honest as you can. I think one of the most telling points in the Cameron biography comes from uh, Shirley Berman, Wallace's widow, who says, you know, who knew Cameron for the for five decades, you know, dating back to uh, the late forties, and she said, you know. For as long as I ca- I knew Cameron, she was depressed. I mean, that's a very very telling thing to say about somebody. And I just think, you know, I my books, the main meat of my books are made up of the interviews. I don't, 
I don't do what, which is an unfortunate trend of people nowadays who seem to think that they can just surf on the internet for their information. I, I track people down like a private eye. And, you know, some of these people are not easy. These aren't people you can, you know, find very easily. You really have to kind of hunt them down because they're very kind of borderline figures. But, you know, I, I track people down and I do interviews with them. And with some people, I interview them again and again and again and again with with their veto, uh, vetoes Widow Sue. You know, I, I interviewed, I did like five or six interviews with her because there was so much uh, to cover. You know, I, Shirley Berman, who, who knew Cameron and as I say, for 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 the best part of uh, five decades, you know, I interviewed her, you know, in person and follow up interviews on the telephone, you know, just to make sure I, you know, everything was covered. So the the, the main meat of my books are made up of the interviews with the people who were there, who were friends, you know, who knew these people uh, as well as anybody. So I, I, I got to ask you now, I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm thinking in terms of, you know, really with either book, but but maybe, you know, concentrating on Bert since we're talking about it. What was the interview or the, the source that you found that was the most challenging or the the wildest story about how you finally got a hold of them or what it was like or how hard it was to find to find some someone? Um, I, I, one of the the hardest um, people with well, finally getting hold of Hampton Fancher was, was was great because I I didn't know how close they were. All I was told was by a mutual friend that Bert used to hang around with Hampton Fancher, and now I didn't know. You know, hanging hang around could be you know they used to see each other, um, you know, at a hangout every so often or whatever. I didn't know the depths of how close was with Hampton until I finally managed to track Hampton down and actually speak to them. I mean, for the first few years that Bert was in L.A., I mean, they were, you know, they were ace boom buddies together. You know, they were living out of each other's pockets nearly. So um, that was great because that also filled in an awful lot of blanks about what what Bert was first doing when he first came to L.A. When, once he was demobbed from the army. Um, but actually, figures like, um, just going back to Cameron for a moment, figures like Buddy Anderson, who was part of this of the jazz crowd in Pasadena in, in the 1940s, um, he, was, he was, you know, a, a guy who you couldn't just kind of look up in the phone book. Um, I, it took three or four people uh, to finally track Buddy down, but you know he knew Cameron and Jack Parsons. You know he went to parties at the uh, at Jack's uh, mansion in in Pasadena and uh, ended up involved unwittingly in these kind of uh, sex magic rituals with with Cameron and uh, and some of his uh, buddies uh, uh, just after Jack died. So kind of real kind of fringe but important characters like that you know everybody knew buddy because buddy made jewelry that everybody wanted but buddy had the made the best roach clips that everybody wanted and and you know he was just a super cool uh, uh guy so it's these often these fringe figures 
um, who who were right there in the middle of all of these scenes who nobody knows about. They're not famous by any means, but these were really important scenesters, you know, who everybody knew. You know, Shirley and Wallace Berman knew him. You know, everybody knew. If you were on that bohemian scene, you knew who Buddy was because, you know, he was a great supplier of... Uh, uh, weeds and he was a wonderful jewelry maker and he was just a really uh, integral part of that bohemian scene in Los Angeles. So yeah, characters, in, in a way- go ahead. So yeah, so characters like that who aren't necessarily famous but um, really do help you kind of connect the dots and and fill in some of the missing jigsaw pieces. Yeah, and, and it's not just that they connect the dots. It's, it's that there's something about Bohemia that I think is really important to recognize, which is that we we are very selective in our memory of who the heroes are, hmm. uh, and that and this is you know true of of all walks of life on some level, but I think it's more true of Bohemia in that there are, for all the remarkable characters that we know about, there are right next door. Or, you know, the next party over, the next, you know, uh, coffee shop over. Equally remarkable characters who are producing incredibly creative work, who are singular personalities uh, with vivid, rich imaginations and wild social lives that nobody remembers except Mm. for their friends. And it's almost as if within that bohemian world, uh, becoming creative, it, it's it's almost it's like almost a crapshoot who we end up remembering. So there's yeah. something really profound about stories like the one you're telling, not just because they bring forward someone like Bird, who fully deserves to be remembered as an artist, as an important figure within the L.A. scene, but then these other interstices characters who 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 didn't really leave a trace, maybe, but who. Uh, you know, still live such vivid lives and such product, creative lives, whatever you want to call it, uh, that there's something sort of strangely inspiring uh, uh, about that. You know, we only have about 10 minutes left, there's, and there's another figure I want to ask about that touched Bert's life. Uh, and he, we've already mentioned, but uh, somebody else who doesn't get enough play for his significance and for his, you know, kind of remarkable charisma, and that's uh, Vito Palekas. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Absolutely, yeah. So, talk a little bit about uh, about Vito and how he he touched Bert's life. Well, I mean, Vito was was one of the um, who who really did gain some prominence um, actually during the time he 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 ended up being in uh, being profiled in a Time magazine uh, during the time of the the so called riot on the Sunset Strip, and they described him as a the chieftain of of the Sunset strip at the time um but yeah i mean it it turns out one of the the great things i learned from his uh widow sue was that uh as a young man he had been uh one of those um marathon dancers and he'd actually uh performed in in the ballroom uh um on the beach of revere where where burt was born and uh brought up um, so he was a fellow Massachusetts and uh, highly uh, creative, highly charismatic. I, I, I was once tempted to, to describe him as a kind of a non-malicious Charles Manson because he had this ability to uh, attract a, a harem of uh, often quite uh, young 
girls who were very uh, attracted to him. And he was, you know, a, a, a true uh, bohemian of that time who, who ended up actually being used in a, in a lot of those 1960s uh, kind of uh, counterculture exploitation films. Uh, he, he, you often see uh, Vito's... Uh, even though he was, you know, he was a lot older than everybody around at that time, um, but had a had a very very charismatic. He was extremely well spoken. If you've ever seen interviews with him, he he took great pride in his command of the king's English, and um, it was they were living. You know, Bert was living uh, lived a lot in Laurel Canyon at that time, and was living not far from where uh, Vito had his sculpture and dance studio. So it was, you know, just a matter of time before their paths crossed. And although Vito, despite what you can read about him online, Vito was, Vito was extremely anti-LSD and, and actually predicted that um, it would lead to a very sticky end for a lot of people. And I think it, I think it kind of it kind of played on it, it, it kind of there was a, a kind of a, the reason why they they kind of parted company in the late 60s was that I think he was very dismayed at, at, at what LST had done to Bert even though you know that they collected Bert's work and uh, you know Bert's work Bert gifted work to them including you know, beautiful drawings of their son Godot, who who died under very tragic circumstances, but yeah, I mean, a wonderful. I mean, Sue Vito's widow still talks very, very um, affectionately about Bert. They had a mute. One of Bert's girlfriend was a quite infamous woman called Valerie Porter, who who uh, who, as you know, had led, led a very colourful life in her own right. And, you know, they were all part of that kind of uh, uh, Los Angeles bohemian scene. And um, they all retained just very, very, a lot of those people just retained very, very affectionate um, uh, memories of Bert. And there's some very moving um, stories in there about Bert's humanity, you know, that even despite the toll that drugs took upon him, and we must not discount, you know, the incredible usage of speed that Bert did, you know, off and on through the years. That, you know, it, it never, it, it never robbed him of his incredible humanity. He was a very, uh, very, very hu human, very, very human dude. You know, very, very yeah. righteous, very, very righteous man. Yeah. You know, since uh, since I here I am talking with a historian of. Of Laurel Canyon, and we're talking about Vito and LSD at the time. Uh, I would like to take this opportunity to get your opinion about the uh, sort of uh, very, uh, kind of conspiracy theories largely associated with David McGowan uh, and and his weird scenes uh, uh, inside the gold mine thing about Laurel Canyon. This idea that LSD was part of an MK Ultra thing to, to you know to sort of shift the counterculture and blah blah blah. And in which all of these figures like Vito are, are seen as somehow agents of uh, some nefarious conspiracy to twist minds away from radical politics. 
Um, we, you know, we only have a few minutes left. We don't have time to go into the substance of these uh, these debates, but it's something that you find out there. It's now part of the kind of uh, cultural mindset around the history of psychedelics, the history of psychedelics in in uh, in, in Southern California. Uh, so, as a historian, uh, is there any uh, any mer- any merit to any of this stuff? Well, I think it's very dismaying because he really does that. That book really does smear a lot of very very important people. I mean. As I say, Vito was vehemently anti-LSD, and he actually believed that, you know, LSD, you know, he was very much an anti-war protester. They, they, these were some of the early anti-Vietnam War protesters, and, and he felt that LSD, um, counter to what McGowan says, he believes that LSD was actually uh, uh, um, diminishing, t- turning people off from their activism and just turning them into kind of brain-dead Zombies. I, I don't put any store in, in what McGowan says whatsoever. I mean, he seems to find it really incredible that so many baby boomers, so many of the, the famous rock star baby boomers of the late 60s, why, they're, why are their fathers so involved with the military? And, and you just have to ask yourself, you know, did he never hear of the, this thing called the Second World War? You know, Southern California is filled with naval and army basis it, it would make sense that an awful lot of the the fathers from the 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 um from the previous generation would have been involved in the armed services um during the second world war but that that doesn't seem to uh, occur to the the late mr mcgowan so yeah I, it's, I would... it's a fu- it's a funny one on that one like uh, like a lot of the way that i i tend to look at conspiracy theories is that they're 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 often good allegories, but bad mm. histories. And yeah. that's a great example is that if you're going to understand California, like the meaning of California, the meaning of California counterculture of, of Bohemia, of, uh, you know, skateboards and surfboards and car cutting and all the crazy stuff, all the cultural richness of California, that story is inextricable. From the history of the military industrial complex in California. It's just, there's no way to, you know, Jack Parsons, best example. But mm. it doesn't mean that it's some kind of conspiratorial machination. It's just mm. that that is part of the nature of the place. Like it's one of the most powerful industries, and not just industries, but it's part of the mindset, it's part of the framework that people don't pay attention to because they're looking at the Beach Boys, they're looking at Hollywood. They don't see the the aerospace industry they don't see the military industrial complex and it's so pervasive but it does but it makes it makes crappy history yeah <laughs> so it, it just seems, it seems to me that he did that old thing where you know he came up with a premise and he tried to twist history to fit his premise you know which is which is not scholarship you know that's not the way that's not the way to do it so um I mean, bringing up Jack, I mean, even, I mean, appalling things are written online still to this day about Jack and, and, you know, one of the things, the the good things about the Cameron book, which I, one of the myths I put to rest was this idea that she even knew about the Babylon working, you know, that this was something that she found out about retroactively. This is not something she knew, she knew about at the time, she, she, uh, during the writ, during the rituals themselves, 
She right. was not. Hey, an, Spencer, she was not an, we, we got we uh, hold. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we just got to wrap it up. So I just wanted no to, to say once again, thank you for doing real history. Thank you for doing the gum show gumshoe work of actually having to find these old cats and interviewing them and putting it together in a readable story. It's a it's a great accomplishment. And I, I urge people to check out out there the transcendent life and art of uh, Bert Schoenberg. So thanks again for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you very much, Eric. It was a great pleasure to talk with you. All right. Okay, folks, until next week, keep your minds open.